BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. All right, Claudia Pocha, welcome to our show. Thank you. So Claudia Pocha, we're friends since... We know each other since 2015, right? We met at the Women's Wear Daily yes. event. And I remember when I met you, I went with this headhunter named Annabelle or Isabel. I think Annabelle. She told me, this is Claudia Pocha. She was the CEO of Laura Morsi. And there was like a whole crowd around her. And we spoke. And I remember that uh, you told me you were from Cooper City. I'm like, I'm from Cooper City. I'm like, no way. You went to the FIU. I went to the FIU. And that's how we clicked. So... I said, listen, I need some help in the beauty industry. I'm new. I need to get a bunch of big brands in my box. Look, I'll help you out. I'll, I got you. And we started working together. She was consulting for me for a couple, for a couple of years, I think. Yeah. It's kind of hard to yeah. put time on it. But um, you had to wait after your non-compete was expired. Right? Yes. And then uh, we started working. So Claudia was, she's, you're the, the, the ideal corporate suit person, successful U.S. corporate America. You... You've been to L'Oreal, and then you went to Louder, then you went to Sashedo throughout the years. Throughout those years, you actually were the CEO of Laura Marcia, which is a big makeup brand. You were the president of Avon Beauty Global that was doing about a billion and a half a year in March, which was you grew it to 100 million yourself. You were later on the CMO of Bare Minerals. You were just a lot of tells, and you were really going, you were the You're CGM. making me sound very old. You're the GM. <laughs> And well, I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm giving them all the all the information. You're the GMC of still after the acquisition to Louder. So it's like if anyone needs to know anything about beauty through the corporate world, this is you. You understand. You're the, the typical suit person that after they acquire you, you show up and say, we're taking over from here. That's pretty much what, is that a good representation? <laughs> Wasn't that the way it was after they acquired Stila? You showed up like, welcome to the new show. I'm here running things. <laughs> and they said. And who are you exactly? And who invited you? We just wanted the check. We didn't expect this. We didn't want anyone suits. else. Yeah. <laughs> no. Well, first of all, thanks, thanks for having me. And um, yes, I have spent thirty plus years in the industry at big companies like Lauder and Avon and and um, and all of those. But uh, the most fun I've had, quite frankly, recently is, is working with entrepreneurs yeah. like yourself. I think you, you started that or maybe maybe Janine Lobel on Stila did, mm -hmm. but um, have recently been working with uh, founders and helping them with everything from finding capital for their business to their business plans uh, to, you know, brand proposition, uh, go to market, product development, all of it. And uh, it's been rewarding 
to take everything you learn, you know, from your experience in these massive global entities and then to bring it down and just kind of distill what do you really need, right? Mm. What, like what, what's really going to be valuable to you? Yeah. Um, you, you know, it, it's like you have so many things and it's kind of like hard to unpack right away everything you've been through, but we're trying to pick on your, on your, like a, your experience and like peel the, the layers, sure. peel up the, the layers. Tell us about you getting your job in Estee Lauder, going into that corporate America on a 40th floor or so, 50th floor, overlooking Central Park, getting a job over there, just coming from the FIU, Florida <laughs> International University. Tell us that, that story. Sure. Well, first of all, you know, they, there's this saying that you learn more from your mistakes than you do from your successes. Mm -hmm. So I sit here a work in progress. So you're going to hear a lot of those today um, because my path has been a little crazy. And I am an accidental beauty executive. I did not plan to do this. I went to FIU because I thought I was going to be in international business and then I had to make money. So I started selling <laughs> cosmetics. The high, Such a pain in yeah. the ass, that making money thing, right? <laughs> you know, your parents finally say, it's time. Yeah. And so, um, so, you know, as you and I were talking about, I had to leave school mm -hmm. and, and start working, which takes us back to Estee Lauder. Did you finish? Uh, um, ultimately through executive development, but not through a traditional degree. And uh, I have Estee Lauder Corporation to thank for that. Actually, Leonard Lauder. Um, so, yeah, I had to jump off. But back to your story, my path to Lauder actually came through um, being on an entrepreneurial business called Giorgio Beverly Hills. And at the time, there was a brand called Calvin Klein's Obsession. And we were in a dogfight. I mean, and the woman who was running Calvin Klein left to go to Estee Lauder. And I happened to run into her at Fort Lauderdale Airport. Oh. And she just said, are you blissfully happy? And I was like, I'm happy. <laughs> um, I don't know about blissful, but I'm happy. And she said, well, I'm going to Estee Lauder, which for me was like a dream come true. Because um, I remember working at that cosmetic counter when the Lauder What exactly, year was it? Um, when I went don't to Don't do Lauder, that. Uh, <laughs> don't no, do no, that. no. We need to know the 1912. chronological. <laughs> yeah, it was yeah. 1912. <laughs> and, that you know, there was a, a carriage outside. <laughs> no, for real. That, wait, wait, I'm trying to give people perspective of timing when it was a private company to a private, public company now. Oh, yeah. No, that was in the early 90s. Actually. Early 90s. Early okay. 90s, for sure. I think it was 92, actually. And um, so anyway just in the Fort Lauderdale airport. And I ran into Robin Burns, who had just become the president of Estee Lauder US. And we had this conversation and she said, you know, I'm putting together my team. I'd love to have you on my team. And um, she goes, I don't know what position we're, we're, you know, we're making it up as we go right now. Like I'm, I'm evaluating what I have. I'm looking to see where my gaps are. And, um, you know, I, I would love to have an opportunity for us to chat. So back to flashback to when I was working behind the counter in the 80s and uh, the lauder executives would come in and I was so blown away by their professionalism and they had the best space and location and the best marketing plans and they knew their stuff. And I always thought, wow, one day I would love to work for Estee Lauder. And this little South Florida girl would love to work in those corporate offices. So to have that happen, you know, that conversation happen 10 years later 
um, by chance in an airport was a mind blower. So I said, yes, I don't care what I do. Just put me in a place and, you know, I'm just happy to be here. And so um, that's when it started. And I actually was put in a holding pattern, which was great because I got to do a lot of things on the marketing side, working with the family. I actually um, managed uh, one of the team that managed Evelyn Lauder's first photography book tour, which, you know, was my first assignment. Let me just go and break it down for the audience. So Estee Lauder is a family-owned company at first. Now it's a public company. It was Estee Lauder that started. Leonard Lander, the whole whole family worked in it. Oh, gosh. We'll have to check my dates on Estee. I mean, I left there. I'm just curious. Yeah, let's Google that. I'm going to Google it. Yeah. Keep going. I'll I'll figure it out. Yeah. No, actually, very much a family business. It was Estee and Joe that started it. Joe. Yeah. And uh, all those Joes are very smart people. They I'm are. Say. They're very, very smart. smart. They're very Founded smart. Founded in 1946. Yep. Yeah. By like an amazing, groundbreaking pioneer, Estee. Yeah. Um, and then Leonard joined the business, and Ronald also, and of course their children are in the business as well. William and Jane and Aaron. Um, but when I was there, it was very much still a privately held company. And probably one of the best entrepreneurial experiences that you could have. So just because they were really in it, I mean, they knew what it was like to, to bootstrap and, and how important it was. And so here was this big company on the outside where people like me in Hollywood, Florida, at the local cosmetic counter, were seeing them come in. And it was like, wow, it's Estee Lauder. And then when I actually got there um, and got behind the velvet curtain, um, it was a lesson in entrepreneurship mm-hmm. at, at the best, you know, it was a front row seat to see that those things that you do um, to get your business up and running, that the the ethos and the work ethic and and the attention to detail and the no ego, you do what you got to do to get the job done was very much embedded in that in that culture at that I time. I find that interesting just because a company founded in 1946, uh, well, now you're talking like 40 years later, right? Or almost almost 50 years later. Um, th- that company would not normally still be entrepreneurial, right? Normally it would have evolved through from that and then you start to have big company problems. I think it's in today's world because in today's yeah. world, soon enough, private equity is going to come give you a price that you can't say no to. They'll move on. They'll They'll strip it down, make it mergent with mergent uh, with with yeah. the, the next competitor on the industry, and and back then I guess the the investment world everything was different. The perspective of money wasn't the same as it is today. So companies kept on going. That's why today you don't see too many companies run that have a chance to survive a hundred years. Back then it was a normal thing. Big companies just stay. They survive. Yeah. And and what what did they do that was so entrepreneurial? Like what what was that? I would say you know Leonard had this um, this plaque that he gave us all that I still have today, and I, I keep it on my desk, um, which basically said think like your customer. Mm-hmm. And um, they did. So they were always students of what was happening, students of consumer behavior, students of what was happening in the economy, students of you know just the the macro environment and really trying to keep their experience real. And, um, and we always used to joke before any budget meeting, you were always overspent, right? Because you, you definitely were very conscious of what you invested in and what you expected out of that. And so, you know, there was that 
mentality of value and creating value. So that's what I mean, you know, where you're really watching every penny. It's this big company. Customer focus is still watching every penny. Yeah. So you're not ignorant to your customers. Like when you get to a certain size, sometimes you see that with companies for sure. Yeah. Um, And then also you don't just spend to spend. You don't just spend to buy business. You spend to be a profitable, good business. Yeah. But I would say this. And that didn't stick around because if you look today, they're, they paid 1.4 billion for uh, to two for Two Face, for example, that was doing I think 220 million a year at the time of the acquisition, thinking it's going to be a big brand, multi-billion dollar. It didn't really happen. Then eventually they obviously bought Stila, overpaid. So things changed. What yeah, do you I think, think s- changed in the industry that well, they I missed think the two mark? Things. Yeah, I think two things, Joe. First of all. Um, let's start with things change and, and the speed to market, um, and the market dynamics changed. Um, and the one thing that I do credit, you know, the leadership at the time was we can build it or we can acquire it if we want to be a leader in that space. And at the time that we started doing acquisitions, it was Aveda in the natural space and it was Mac in the makeup space. And at the time, Lauder had prescriptives, which they had built. What does it mean, prescriptive? Prescriptives was a makeup artistry brand that then went into skincare. But it was all about color theory, color matching, custom color, personalization of your palettes. They were way ahead of the curve. Um, But there was this emerging consumer demand for makeup and makeup artistry. And... um, and they knew that they were ha- it was taking a long time to build it with prescriptives. And Leonard or Fred, um, Fred Lankhammer, Leonard Lauder, one of those guys, I don't know, I wasn't in the room at the time, but uh, there was something fascinating happening with Mac. And they were just tapping into the zeitgeist of the culture at the time. And, you know, and they were just really creating this cult phenomenon in makeup. And that was really a major acquisition because Leonard wanted to make sure that they were leaders. They were already leaders in skincare with Estee Lauder and Clinique and uh, with the Aveda acquisition moving into the natural space. But in makeup, you know, Mac was winning and winning big. And, and Leonard understood market segmentation. There was a consumer for that. And then came Bobby Brown, which if you think about it, you had Mac at this end of the spectrum, right? All races, Bobby all Brown colors. Bobby Brown is on the other side. And Bobby at the other. So you were really capturing both ends of the let me Let me just market. explain the male consumer how it looks. One is very colorful, which is Mac, and all the cool chic girls want to wear. And then the other one is everyday look, uh, I would natural, say. Natural. Natural look. Completely different uh, kind of like mindset for someone that doesn't want to go and pop their the look with artistry that just want to do something very no makeup makeup type exactly and so again um it goes back to understanding the market understanding that the makeup market is growing and within that there's market segmentation Mm -hmm. and one brand doesn't do it all because who wants to wear their mother's makeup Mm -hmm. estee right the estee lauder brand had an older audience and so there's this young and -and up-and-coming generation that's looking for different things that's what led to the acquisitions. And then Stila was the third makeup brand. So now they really owned all of the segments within Estee Lauder. Stila was really that L.A. red carpet, this is your best moment. You know, you That are. was later, years later. No, actually, no? the Stila acquisition was in 1999. And okay. when was Mac? 
Mac was, uh, I would say, mid-90s. Okay, so a couple of years later, Stila yeah. became popular. Is it because Stila was the coolest one in Sephora, and Sephora wasn't a thing for them to play with? They were mostly sitting in, in Bloomingdale's and Macy's. That was the hub to go in. And like Sephora didn't get all the cool brands at the time, and suddenly they made one of their own brand really cool, and they wanted to enter. Yeah, well, first of all, Stila was cool, and I credit Janine Mobel, the makeup artist behind it. She was a visionary. I mean, you think about everyone talking about sustainability today and your, your footprint. Um, our packaging was cardboard, mm. right? Um, you think That's about way ahead of its time. Way ahead of its wow. time. I mean, she really um, is a, a visionary. I, I credit her with teaching me so much about product um, and really tapping into the zeitgeist of what's happening. She also, every single one of her products, when you opened the lid of an eyeshadow, there was a quote from a famous woman. Some just made you laugh. Some were inspiring. But again, um, you talk about... It wasn't a thing at the time. No. It was it was a, so a black ahead. lipstick, black bullet lipstick by MAC. That's what owned the world, what was running the world. And it, they all look the same, just a different sticker for the, the, the color and that's it. Right now they're coming up with something a little bit more refreshing, different colors. Doesn't have to be all black and white like you know what you would see. So the labeling, the marketing, the branding, yes. all it was all new at the time. Yeah. All ahead of its curve. All three of them, quite frankly. Yeah. Bobby with her six, you know, ba ranges of neutrals. Mac with its artistry. It's all about the makeup artist. It was about transformation. RuPaul was their spokesperson, mm -hmm. and yeah. right. So you had that whole edgy counter cool you had this more natural look and then you had you know this this LA brand that was really tapping into all the things we're talking about today you know women empowering women mm -hmm. uh, sustainability what year was this, this, this was, was um, gosh the acquisition of Stila was 1999 so it's, it was still very early on yeah, yeah. like sustainability and and you yeah. know and 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 basically uh, equity and and making women, you know, and, and highlighting women's achievements and, and trying to... Everything you see now was like, started years ago, yeah. right? But I mean, years it wasn't... Ago. I don't think it was as much of a, a thing in 1999. I think that probably evolved over the 2000s. I think it was happening. I think what you're seeing right now, and I do want to go back to something about um, this whole piece of Lauder's strategy to acquire these young up-and-coming brands, um, because I think it's important. Um, in the bigger conversation yes. about businesses and entrepreneurs and why you're building value. But you're seeing the same thing in beauty right now, today. There is a new generation that is up and coming right now who is embracing some of the things we're talking about. There is this whole new era of self-expression, and there's going to be a new Mac. And I think I might be working with a young woman who can bring that to the forefront um, very quickly. There's this whole thing happening about sustainability and natural and holistic beauty from the inside out. And you think about, you know, what Aveda was doing at mm -hmm. the time and, you know, what the story I just told you. So there is a fundamental shift because just like we didn't in the early 90s want to wear our mother's brand, these this generation of beauty mm. consumers also, right? Where their mother's brand, right? Yeah. And and yeah. and they're defining what their you know what self-expression means to them, or what um, 
you know, a, a wellness means to them and yeah. how they're going to approach that. And then and what beauty means to them too. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but it's so that. Let's let's go back though. Let's go back to what you started yeah. with, um, with market segmentation. Yes. So they acquired Stila. And at the, at the time, you explained to me that Stila was number, number one, one in Sephora. In Sephora. In Sephora, they wanted to enter Sephora. Yes. And they didn't want to enter Sephora with their flagship brand without knowing the store. So it was important for them to acquire Stila, yep. understand the, yep. the dynamic in the store. The, wow, I'm so impressed you remembered that I yeah. told you this at the time. Well, it was 2015. It wasn't too long ago. I mean, 2022, it's only Yeah, but I can't years. remember what I did yesterday. So. Well, I mean, okay, so I'll, I'll say this, right? So Sephora was having a challenge. The reason I remember that is because they went through the same challenge I went, went to. I yeah. wanted the big brands. The big brands didn't go in. They had to go and create their brands as cool. Yeah. So then the big brands would die to go and be with the cool brands. And that's how it turned, right? Because at first they yes. had the big brands, but then... The, the federated stores, which is Macy's, Bloomingdale's, Diamonds at the yeah. time, said, May company. It's, if, you stay, if you're in Sephora, you can be with us. So eventually they pulled right. all the big brands out of Sephora. And then throughout the 90s, Sephora built itself with their own brands. Stila was a thing. Now, Lauder wants to go back inside. They said, well, let us acquire Stila, right? And I'm just memory from 2015, what you told me. Um, now let's go by inside. And then he told you it's... Um, product diversification we have to go and learn that space but you have to also make sure we understand the store and that that was one of the main strategic reasons to acquire yes uh, stila yep there right. was the market segmentation in the category but there was a channel segmentation strategy as well so yes and in terms of so in terms of the channel thing what things were becoming more open cell the counters were going away um was a moment in time where sephora was also um struggling to establish itself um, here in the U.S. And so Stila was the number one makeup brand at Sephora at the time. And that was very much, you know what, you buy the number one brand in this new channel that we need to learn in order to be successful in. And then we export those learnings to the rest of our company so that we understand also what's changing in the consumer experience. How does she want to experience products? She doesn't want to maybe go up to a counter and have somebody there. She wants her own time to explore and enjoy it. And so, yes, it was a great opportunity to really learn about what was happening in terms of how consumers wanted to engage with beauty in a new way for a new generation. And mm -hmm. Stila was that entree point for so, so they're sitting down, uh, and I'm trying to think kind of like as a founder that says, look, whatever I did back then, it gets to be a little bit uh, off-tuned into the market. Now the market changes. And I need to buy the winners in the new categories that are coming. You got like the beauty category, but then you have subcategories. So if you said, okay, in makeup, you can like have two winners or three winners. They're all different. I'll buy all three of them, right? Because they did acquire eventually all three, right? And, yeah, and all three and th while I was a, there. So I'm thinking... When when they've done this at the time, as they kept going on and the industry is getting more and more fragmented, which means anyone can open a beauty brand right now. It's very hard to identify a winner. Back then, a winner would go to billions of dollars in sales, as Mac did, and as uh, even even uh, uh, what's the name? Um, Bobby. Bobby Brown, right? Mac Moore, right? Global. But today, it doesn't happen. No brand gets to be billions of dollars anymore. For some reason, but it's segmentation, right? It's it's not segment. It's just uh, fragmentation of the market. But everyone can do what you do. 
everyone can get on social media. Everyone can go to a manufacturer. Everyone can go and push. If you have something within months, I'm going to have the same product. You come up with a holographic highlighter, oh, say no more. Let's go. And it's really about about how fast can I just make it. So I'll go to a local place. I'll buy components that are local. I'll come up really, really quick with a highlighter. And guess what? I'll get, I have a relationship with a couple big influencers. And off we go. And let's just start selling. It's just after a while, it's an impossibility for them to just buy everybody or even identify who's going to make it. Well, I think it actually, Joe, what you're saying, you're speaking to a brander, yes. right? So understand that for me. You know, um, I believe you can sell anybody anything once, but if you want to build a sustainable business, you better make sure that your product lives up to your promise. Okay. Consistently. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tackle you on this one, though. Yeah, good. So here it is. So <laughs> if you say that, okay, anyone can sell a, a T-shirt for 12 bucks, but in order to charge 80, you have to brand yourself. Fair. Or to sell a second T-shirt. Yeah, or a second to, T-shirt. Yes, exactly. Or a second T-shirt, or, but you have to brand yourself. You can charge more, you can con- consistently sell more. However, when you ask yourself to what size you can grow those days, because you say, well, back then, if you say, I buy this brand, they have their branding, maybe I can fine-tune their branding because I understand, I have my team, I have Claudia, we can get the branding, we'll put you in this store, you have, you're in 50 doors or 100 doors or 1,000 doors, yeah, I can put you in 10,000 doors globally. So right now you do 50, but I can put a, a, in my chart, you'll be a billion at that point or 500 million at that point, and I can control the EBITDA. I know all the, all the politics. Today it's no longer. That's true. So the problem for a company like Clouder that goes and pay maybe the multiples in the sky or many others like them is they said, well, where, where do I buy the brand? What, when is the point now that I stick it? Is it 5 million? Is it 50 million? When do I know that if I buy them at a point and I say I'll pay 10 times EBITDA, I will still re- recuperate my money and I'll stay relevant because they're relevant. But what is that right price point? Do I buy them when they're that small? Just that, that is the challenge that you're going to have because... That's no true. Matter, and I you're think they're grappling is, is, is not is The branding part, unfortunately, is now up to the masses. You go to so many companies that the founders just very articulate. They can understand branding. Maybe not everybody, but they'll be 10%. But if a 10% of the people that can get this, it's just... A hundred people out of a thousand. Let's separate. Let's unpack branding from product. Okay. Because I said product. Right? Okay. And your product is reflective of of what you want. I'm taking my product to Oxygen well, Development. Talk, He's going to make the same product next week. So let, no, what let, do you do? Let's talk about Boxy. Okay. Okay. Let's talk about yours. Because, yes. by the way, amazing success story. Thanks. Right? Mm-hmm. Okay. And you wanted to break the norms of the industry in terms of creating an experience, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. That was, I got to have it. And that was different in the marketplace. Yes. Okay. You just a few minutes ago told me how you continually evolved your product mix, mm-hmm. who you brought in, who you worked with in influencers so that you could be relevant, but that your box was always better than your competitors. Yes. Okay. That's what I'm talking about. So I'll, I'll, I'll explain to you the two differences between a beauty box and a makeup brand. Okay, so first of all, you're 100% well, correct. She's 100% correct. Just let correct. me let me answer yeah, that yeah. question. I'm sorry. Here's the difference. When you have a beauty brand, everything you do, 
whatever you do, I'll take it tomorrow to a lab and I can dupe it. I can modify it. I can be the 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 thing is, if you come up right now and I'll take the holographic highlighter as an example, all right. If you just came up with a holographic highlighter and it turns out to be a thing, there is a supply and demand issue. In the market right now, it's a thing. All the influencers are going crazy. Or either it was either Anastasia coming up with this or uh, um, the, the the tattoo artist I forgot her name. Um, that came up with this, and there are two brands that came up with holographic highlighter. Everyone wanted to, the holographic highlighter. There's about a gap of about eight months until you can come up with a product into market, right? You go to a manufacturer, lab, you decide on the formulation, now they go for production. Within those eight months, there is that much of demand, but only two brands can sell it. If I come up soon enough, I'll make more money, but eventually everyone will come up with the same product and that trend will die. It's not what it used to be before when you had few big companies that compete with each other and it takes them a while to manufacture something. So in today's world, you go in a product perspective. I've noticed this because I've worked with so many brands and thousands of products. Everything eventually gets duplicated. So in, in the box world, and this is where it gets challenged, you have a whole different scale scalability challenge. First, to get to about 20,000 subscribers. Because once you get to 20,000 subscribers, you have to manufacture all your products about eight months to a year out. That kills 90% of your competition, 95% of them. Because now you have to have enough capital to go and buy boxes and anticipate where you're going to be, which you know you're going to miss up or down a year out. And you have to put deposits because manufacturers don't know you. Now that takes out all the ones with no money. That is something a brand doesn't have. So now I'm only competing with the ones that were able to go after the first hump. Then it's all about execution from there, and we're just doing better. But in your case, I can come up with a small brand, and I can come up with 1,000 or 10,000 units to go and launch very quickly. It's very duplicable compared to what we had. It wasn't duplicable if you really want to scale it. 20,000, anyone can do it. Get to a million, different story. That's why you can see hundreds of boxes, but only two or three that made it all the way through. Right. That's, that's the difference between the two. My, my reason behind telling you this, it's because I feel that the beauty industry have been transformed because of social media and the accessibility. When you go right now to Cosmoprov, you have how many manufacturers? Mm -hmm. Yes, You can't even count, right? So I feel like that is where it hates uh, a, a problem for the major brands where they say, well, you can't just buy the winners because the winners might get irrelevant. And then in a year from now, there's another one. What are you going to do? Pay them another billion dollars? Every year, there's going to be a new one that's going to be the new brand. I think you have to look at what your overarching corporate strategy is. I don't think it's the same playbook and you hit the same button all the time. I mean, there was a lot in what you just said. And I think you know, when you take a look at what's happening in the marketplace, a big piece of it is how the consumer is engaging with the category, mm -hmm. which is very different than it used to be. So you have what we're talking about from the, the product, right, and the scalability of something and your point of differentiation. Absolutely, because everybody's doing yeah. it. And so you, again... To, I say to people, you know, if you have a proprietary idea or if you're pushing your formulator, buy your formula and make sure you have a manufacturing process as well so you can mm -hmm. take it anywhere you want because it's yours. Yeah. Um, you know, like an Olaplex, if you will, right? Or um, can you explain about Olaplex? Yeah, okay. it's a hair product. But 
Um, then the other thing is your go-to-market strategy. So now I'm going to go back to a conversation. I'm going to bring this back to you because you're one of the best marketers I ever had the pleasure of, of working with. And I'm not just saying it because it's here. I'm saying it because I learned yeah. a lot because the industry was changing yeah. and you were on the leading edge of that. So you once said to me, I'm not a, a sample box program. I'm a marketing company. Mm -hmm. I understand what's happening in the culture. I understand who those influencers are. I understand how to hit that emotional cord and get them engaged in this product. Yes. Right. So it's not an either or. Mm -hmm. I think the industry right now is grappling with, OK, what does that look like for this for this particular brand? Because their audience is not the same as this audience over here. So that's why brands have looked at portfolio diversification. Mm -hmm. That's why big brands have struggled, right, to appeal to everybody, whether it was Estee Lauder or um, a Clinique that had to reboot their marketing and their messaging to, to bring in that audience. Yeah. But when you look at the top brands at the end of the year, guess who's on the top? L'Oreal, Estee Lauder, like those big guys, they're, they're the biggest volume ones still. So there's something to be said for, um, I know a lot of the stuff is, is acquisitive and there are a lot of little brands that break through, but brand building and beauty is about continuity and delivering in that brand promise. The, the how you do it can change, but your quality, your integrity, your authenticity, um, your commitment to what you stand for and how you bring that to market is what great brands like we were talking about Mercedes and Rolex and Porsche. And, you know, there's a reason and people pay a premium for that because they they know what it stands for. Can I actually I want to just I had a thought about the question you asked because I was just trying to figure out one point and I thought it was an interesting question because you had asked that what what size should you buy a company if you're trying to do an acquisition yeah. and I think that the answer to that lies in the ability to replicate the success of all the other acquisitions you do. So how do you guarantee, and we were alluding to this downstairs, how do you guarantee an acquisition is going to be a success? Because if you can solve for that, if there's a playbook to purchase, onboard, and scale a company, then technically you actually don't even have to purchase a company that already has a significant track record. You could take an up-and-coming company at a lower price point with a lower maybe multiple because they don't have as much venture capital in or private equity money in or maybe the founders slightly less experienced, so they're not going to be demanding this huge multiple on their EBITDA, and you could buy them and then you could still be successful with that. But what what you're talking about when you when they purchase those three brands, all three of those were successful. There was probably some winners, some losers, and other acquisitions they did. But ultimately, I guess the question would be, when you see a company that repeatedly acquires successfully organizations, what are the things that allow that acquisition to be successful so that they don't have a whole bunch of failures? And it's not just luck. No. There, there has to be a strategy to yeah. acquiring, scale it. Because if we look at other examples, not to name any names, I mean, I've been through acquisition events before. Same with Yosef. And we've seen acquisition events where the company that gets acquired is no longer successful. I think he's right. I think, I think uh, for Scott's point, definitely they did a lot of things right, at least early stage when the main people were landing. I'm trying to get a involved. business lesson. How, how, did they, yeah. how did they do it right? How did they do it right, at least in the beginning? Okay. So first of all, I don't think, I think that if there was one set playbook, everybody would be doing it right now. I think every mm -hmm. major corporation has a strategic roadmap that's different you know, and that's unique to them. 
So let's just start with that and, and where they are in their growth. But um, I would say, first and foremost, as you take a look at any business, you know, does it fit your long-range plan? And when do you do it? You do it when you have the momentum, but also when you see a runway for it, right? So when you see what's happening in the marketplace, you know, they may be developed here, but geographically there's room to expand the brand mm -hmm. because there's consumer demand for it and there's a resonance and the product will do that. You know how, you know what it reminds me of what you just said? It's, it's actually funny. If you watch Narcos, uh, when you said, okay, I, I know that it sells good over here. Oh, I know it's going to sell great in Italy and everything else. I'm thinking about Narcos where you see the first or second episode in uh, Narcos 1, Narcos Colombia. And this guy comes from uh, Chile. He teaches uh, Pablo Escobar about cocaine. And he tells him it sells for a couple dollars. You can sell it over here for a couple dollars. Like, my friend, you have no vision. I'm going to sell this in Miami. So that is probably what they had. They're like, oh, we are selling global already. We know the market globally. That's going to work right. in all those countries. That's probably what they saw. Yeah. Yes. And I think that that's important. You know, um, and I think the other thing that the... the that the smart companies know, it's not just you lift it and plunk it in. You have to understand in that culture, how do you communicate your message, right? So that it, it is accepted culturally. Yeah. Because, you know, some brands love, you know, uh, you know, some countries love American brands, I mean, right? And they want to bring them in, or French brands, right? I mean, if you come from France and you're in beauty, mm -hmm. it must mean you're amazing. Yeah. Well, not all of them, but, you know, so... But then how do you communicate that so that you also are culturally relevant? Both, first of all, culturally relevant outside of your company on a global scale, like in true different yep. uh, demos, but also how do you bring the culture of that organization into your own company and not butcher it? That's also something like how do you not stifle innovation? How do you not kill the, the passion that the original founder had? So I have to tell you, and it's not a lauder story at all. It's an Avon story. Mm -hmm. We haven't even gone to Avon yet. Okay. I know, but it's important <laughs> because um, because that was a place where it was very hard not to let the mothership eat its young, hmm. and having responsibility for the U.S. business, and um, responsibility for this little, you know, uh, brand that was really not meant to do anything other than figure out how to reinvent direct selling for a younger demographic, who was going to be buying and selling products off of her phone. Mm -hmm. And so that really was, how do you break the paradigm of direct selling, right? The door-to-door -door became screen-to-screen. -screen. Now it's third screen-to-third screen. And you've got uh, a, at the time, and I can't tell you where they are today, but at the time, a $10 billion company globally um, that was dealing with a channel that was becoming, you know, more and more difficult, mm -hmm. you know, and, and that, funnel of bringing new people in and how do they make money and how do you keep that vibrant and alive um, it was stuck in very old marketing plays you know metrics all of that um, hitting that discount level you know lever all the time so my point is when I came on I was asked to um, at Avon at Avon yeah. when I was recruited from Estee Lauder to go to Avon and I was not looking to leave have Lauder. you ever looked for a job or <laughs> people people just Cherry, I guess you're good. <laughs> Thank you. That's kind. Um, I've been really fortunate. I, I have been really fortunate in my career. One thing you learn when you try to, when you use a headhunter, the good ones, they don't look for a job. Yeah, they're not looking. Yeah, they're they not looking for a job. You have to, you have to convince them. You have to explain to them why they should leave where they are and move over there. Yeah. yeah. 
And so um, I certainly never, I never expected to leave the Estee Lauder company. Um, but this was, this challenge to reinvent a, a, a tired direct selling model for a new generation of entrepreneurs, because Avon is, you know, entrepreneurship. And if, if you really want to know, you know, if your business, if your dog can hunt, make your representative is your customer and your retailer and your product developer, right? Yeah. You know, and so it's so interesting if you fast forward where Glossier made their community part of it, you know, well, that's what, that's the fundamental of direct selling, right? Mm -hmm. it, it, yeah. It's interesting to see. So, um, you know, where we were going with that is how do you keep that culture alive? And I will tell you that it was extremely hard to, because um, we were breaking all the rules, all the rules, all the business rules, all the business model rules, all the product rules, everything, um, the earnings structure. And so we tried to ring fence it so that it could breathe. Mm -hmm. But little by little, and the objective was learn and export your learnings into the mothership. Yeah. Okay. Well, they, how 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 uh, serious were they about actually fencing it off? Was it like physical office away from yeah. the main site? Yeah. Okay. Well, that's the funny part yeah. because this is where you say what happens to the culture. Yeah. So it started off when I got there. Um, we had our own floor, totally looked different from the rest. Yeah. Right. And that was for Mark. This was for Avon Mark. Yes, okay. for Mark, and it was Mark. Um, and great products, no discounting, none of the traditional direct selling levers. And um, and I spent, during my non-compete, my whole summer on college campuses um, watching what young women were doing, who my audience was going to be. And like you do, I, you know, I would sit down with them and just say, hey, you know, I'm looking to start a cosmetic brand and, you know, how many hours a week do you work? Can you really work? And what do you expect to earn? And what are the softer benefits, the discounts of this and that? And, you know, these interviews formed our business model. So we started off our own space, our own team, things are going. And now, you know, the mothership is like, well, we want to put that in the Avon catalog. And it's like, respectfully, no, because that's not that consumer. She's telling you, She's not coming into your channel and she's not buying your product because she wants something different. So we scaled to 100 million in about four years, which is great with our own set of representatives. And we did migrate digital magazines or catalogs to Avon. But little by little, you know, then they, you know, Mark had one page in the Avon catalog. Then it had two pages, and then there was a bundle on it, and you know, um, and so they. I used to say they ate their young. Yeah, right. That's when you over integrate, and uh, yeah. yeah, you you have a different agenda, and you just kill what you had over there. Yeah, yeah. So you know, I wanted to take you a little bit forward in time. Okay, let's go chronologically, and we might jump back and forth. <laughs> There's nothing your, crazy time, <laughs> your time, your time in uh, Sushedo. Yes. All right. You. I remember one day you What's called. What's this? Sushedo. <laughs> for those who don't know, okay. For I love for it. the male yeah. consumer. This is so refreshing to talk to someone oh who isn't yeah. so immersed in the business because my, I. My girlfriend would be kicking my ass right now for. Sushedo. Sushedo is a global. It. It's a Japanese. It's a Japanese okay. skincare brand that became a phenomenon. It became a very big. Uh, 
I think they're worth right now roughly about 60 billion or, or I, I didn't oh, check last day. time the market. It's, it's a huge oh, market cap. Huge. Uh, it's huge. Mar- they own lots of brands. Part of the brands they owned was later on, they owned uh, Laura Mercier. They own um, they, they owned, uh, Bare Minerals. I think they acquired Bare Minerals for 1.5, some 1.4 billion at the time. Bare Minerals was doing 700 million in sales because they're killing it on uh on qvc the i I mean i don't want to break it down right now but overall so you finish your job as the ceo of um laura mercier you had that refreshing time laura mercier revive and Uh, yes correct correct. but i mean the majority was laura it was 250 million in sales that you took it to from 100 million to 250 million that's what i mean revive was about 10 million in sales no well no, but no. close enough. Close enough. Close enough. Right. Close I, I'm enough. just talking about big ones, but but I, I, you're running all three of them, yes. So <laughs> you had in between. In you had in between some time. You consulted. You consulted for me. You. I'm going to be talking later on about something that you said that was super impactful for our growth, that you helped me with, and but then you got this job, and I remember I was with you when you told me I'm I, I'm I'm getting a call with Mark. He was the CEO of. A, Sashedo uh, USA. US, uh, Americas. Americas. Yeah. Americas. And um, That's all we, of NAM? Is that all, all of North America markets? For, the because Americas. they have global. It's in yeah. Japan based, but somebody had to run. No, I'm just the, wondering the scope. Yeah. Like how big is, is Mark's purview? Like it's significant. Oh, yeah. yeah I, okay. All of yeah. the Americas. Okay. It's all of the Americas. Yeah. It was okay. a big deal. And then Huge. Uh, we thought you're going to run again Laura Marcia because they just acquired Laura Marcia. And it was kind of like natural that you ran them before. You got them from 100 to 250. Can you please run it? But then, no, you get an offer. Whatever. Numbers don't matter here. 200? (laughs) Was it 250? No, it was not. Okay. Well, (laughs) you see, I don't remember at all. That's that's why you're here to correct. Yeah, I just don't want anybody to come in. What were the actual numbers that are public? I, or are, it, they no, are there no public numbers? I think you just it need to it's, take yeah. my word. It was not $250 million, nor was it 200 Okay. okay. But, but near there. Okay. okay. That? That's cool. That's cool. All right. So it, but but it was a serious here. brand. It was a serious brand. They, they acquired the brand. And, um, and then you ended up getting the job as the CMO of Bare Minerals, which was a much larger brand. And there was no CEO at the time. The idea was that you can, you can start off and we'll see what happened maybe later on. Tell us about that experience. Okay. lot to unpack there. But um, first of all, a big, honestly, for, for me, it was a disappointment because we had just slogged through so many operational issues um, for the, the portfolio businesses that we divested. And Laura Mercier and I were so excited to have that all behind us and to be able to embark on another growth trajectory, you know, to continue that together. So, um, so Laura Marcy is the founder, obviously, of Laura right. Marcy. She's makeup a makeup artist. artist yeah. And, but she was not the CEO I've of the company. Actually, I learned that this morning when I Googled. Yes. <laughs> I was Googling all these makeup brands. Yeah, she is, um, you know, I can't even be objective. She's become a, a almost like family, you know, I mean, truly family as, and friend, but business partner. And um, there was a magic there that, you know, it, it comes from knowing the strength of your founder mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and knowing what your supporting role is and playing off of one another's so strengths so for the benefit of the business. And I think that's an important lesson yes. for any founder. It's why we were yeah. a great team as well. And I told Joe when I came in, that probably the biggest mistake I ever made was saying yes 
to Bare Minerals and no to move to, to, to partnering move to with Joe Charm. on BoxyCharm yeah. in retrospect. You yeah, know, I, was, I was asking her to come and work with us. And yeah. uh, I mean, she got a big offer. We were a small company at the time. It was it was just a uh, second year in business and uh, we were struggling at the time. Nobody knew us. And I told her, look, we're going to be big. But and she didn't have a doubt. But you obviously it was the right decision at the moment. At to the make, moment. Yes. But if you look back in time, you know, everything's always you grow up, you learn a lot. Right. So here's a lesson for all young um, and not so young entrepreneurs um, and leaders in any business is, you know, sometimes you have to trust your gut and your instinct, you know, and just say, I'm going for it. Screw it. I'm going for it. And I didn't have the courage of my conviction at the time for because of other obligations that I had. To, to family and things like that. Um, but, you know, I wouldn't trade a minute of my bear experience either because you learn so much on challenging businesses. So to Joe's point, um, Shiseido had had the business. Um, the market dynamics changed again, right? And so here was this darling of QVC. The founder has now, who was the face of the brand and the energy of the brand. And um, I got the benefit of spending a little time with her, but she went on to do something else. Um, the brand over-expanded its um, owned and operated stores into malls when people were migrating out of malls, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Um, they opened additional distribution. And so now you have a brand who was the original clean beauty brand down in revenue double digits when the whole market is growing in clean beauty. And so you had to unpack all of these pieces about the brand and what do you need to do to revive the brand, the channel. How do you return it to profitability? How do you rationalize the distribution? How do you look at the geographic opportunities right now as clean beauty is growing? And one of the things that Joe and I had talked about was there was so much to do. You needed to be able to be a firefighter. And I found myself on an airplane every five weeks flying to Tokyo um, to present our strategy and, you know, they're very process oriented and, you know, very much there's consensus building. And, and that was a big lesson for me as an executive who grew up. I was in trying US. to talk to, I was trying to talk to you. I remember at that time and every time you couldn't, because there was another presentation you have to prepare for weeks in advance instead of doing the job for people in Japan. And, and it was kind of like mind blowing to me. It's just so not important to present. Just let me fix, move aside. Just shut the fuck up, bitches. I'm going to take care of it. <laughs> But move aside, let me do my work. I'll come back when I'll come back. But right now you can't disturb. And it was impossible to get a hold of you at that time because you just had to go and work and present. And it was take you, you and the whole team. The whole team. The whole team. The Everybody. Whole team. Just no work, just work to present. It's like, it's like, and I gave you the analogy. I said, you know, when you when you deal with what's not important and definitely not urgent, it's as if the Titanic is sinking and your entire Job, let me clean the bathroom before it's, it's, like, it's just not the important. You don't do the regular stuff at that time. This is where you all have to buckle up and let someone else modify. Well, these are these big company, big company problems that I was talking about, but it seems like that's, that's taking to the nth degree, right? Yeah, well, it goes back to culture, right? Yeah. What, you know, um, we as a U.S. culture, I think, are inclined to lean in, move quicker, you know, take some bigger risks. Um, think about that country of origin. And, you know, it is a very 
methodical, process-oriented type of, you know, traditional culture. Nothing wrong with that. But how, but, does the, how right. do you apply that to exactly. a, a, a fast-moving market? That's right. the issue. Right. And I, I would say that it tested all of our ability, which is why I was working all the time, because you would, you know, be preparing for these presentations and then doing your real job at night, you know, when you might yeah. want to be home and have dinner with your family from time to time. Um, but um, it was it was, for me, culturally... A challenging time because there was so much that needed to be done. There was prioritizing it. There was, it was. Um, one of my colleagues once said it was like fixing a flat tire when you're, you know, racing the Daytona, right? And and the car's in motion, mm -hmm. and you're, you know, you're in the pit trying to do it at the same time. So, um, you know, I think in those times, you know, you have to look at what are the urgent things and what do you need to be able to provide the air cover for your team as a leader so that they can fix it and get some traction while you're managing, you know, while you're managing the process, right? But still accountable for the numbers. Um, I yeah. want to just say um, one thing that uh, kind of like struck me was when I asked you about the structure, you spoke to me about the metric system where you manage one thing and another lady manage another thing. Yes. She doesn't, you create the concept and uh, and she needs to execute however she doesn't report to you and you don't report to her and it seems like an oxymoron because no one is accountable so you said okay do xyz she said i don't want to do it and then this was at that time mm -hmm. okay yeah but that's where because you were cmo there yeah i was cmo and head of international and who's the, who's the and person you're referring to i forgot her name no no what's the title then? uh she was the the gm president slash gm but no of the one's ceo no one's like we reported into the ceo of the americas mm. of, of sashedo not of for the brand itself. so there was no brand yeah. president at the time okay. there was yeah. a runway there um and that's where somebody has to make the tough call that's where the senior leader has to step up yeah and support the people he's put into place or she's put into place at that time. So obviously, you know, opportunities there. How much knife stabbing there there is out there in this world, in this corporate beauty world between what people? Stabbing with knives, political like like backstabbing? Yes, backstabbing goes on and Oh, you know, I like to operate in a you know, bring your best, do your best. It's a long game, right? Um, there's plenty of room for everybody to be successful. But is it true to say that it was a competition and people step on each other in that particular case where one of you needs to be the CEO, it's either he, you or her, both of you are fighting for the position. However, no one reports to each other and then it's all knives out. So... You know, here's where here's where you have to look at things with a sense of humor. Neither one of us got the job, <laughs> um, and he hired someone with absolutely no experience yeah. in the industry. Interesting. Um, and then both of us spent all our time teaching our boss <laughs> while all this was going on and flying back and forth. So yeah, I would say that there are plenty of learning opportunities there. Um, you know, look, uh, in general, it was it was meant to be a meritocracy. Mm. It didn't necessarily play out that way. Um, but you learn from that, too. And I think you learn a lot about human nature and how people comport themselves 
during times of extreme um, pressure in the business and in the deliverables. So, you know, I don't get involved in all that stuff um, because I, I really believe your reputation is all you have. Mm-hmm. And um, you, you have to operate by your moral code and your principles. And I've always done that. So, you know, my favorite expression is I like to take the high road because there's less traffic up there. Mm. But what, if, you, if you speak right now to our listeners and some of them want to have that corporate America going around the city with the suit and uh, having this great office, you hate beautiful suits. view. Well, I mean, some people want to have that beautiful view in the back of the window. It with doesn't the coffee stink. Machine. It doesn't stink, right? And it's it's cool. No, I mean, I've seen I've seen the way I, I've, I seen, I've seen the way they operate, and I would tell you that it doesn't look bad. I mean, they work more hours than anyone can imagine. They're hardworking people. They not all. Not, they don't work more than entrepreneurs. I'm not saying it's more than entrepreneurs. I'm just saying that they do work hard. And they do I mean, work she hard, can yeah. tell you she can tell you from her own yeah. experience. You work very hard. It's yeah. a lot of work to do. But at that, at that level, but then yes. yeah. Yeah. but then yeah. the idea is that what would be the advice you give people that want to get into the corporate world? In terms of, look, this is how you protect yourself because every corporation has a political, it's a political organization. Mm-hmm. How would you, how would you, so if, it's, if it's too political, that's when you leave. It shouldn't be a good environment to work or it can actually be sustained working this. How would you, how would you, what tip would you give people that want to enter this world? So I would start by saying I absolutely loved my run in corporate America. Mm-hmm. Loved it. I learned so much about um, complex operating models and matrices. I learned how to lead through influence versus hierarchy. Um, I learned, you know, understanding um, value creation um, for shareholders. And um, so, you know, there's a lot of good things there. I would also say my EQ. Um, was really refined working in corporate. So, you know, when you're in a smaller environment, um, sometimes you can, you know, you can let loose a little bit differently. When you're in a boardroom and you're presenting and you have conflicting point of views, you know, I think there's uh, a skill set of, of how to bring your point of view without being insulting or cutting other people off or things like that. So I would say that there is a lot of learning um, that I value and that I bring with me. And I, I try to carry that forward and teach people. Are there going to be, is it competitive? Yes, it's competitive. You know, there's X amount of seats at the top, no matter what business you're at, right? So my counsel to anyone is, you know, um, focus on I'm being the best you that you can be. Be a constant student of your category, your competitors. My God, people who are like, I don't look at my competitors. It's like, really? I do, right? Mm-hmm. You know, if you if you read one of my favorite books that one of my mentors um, gave me when I first became a CEO, Michael Gould, he was the CEO of Bloomingdale's at the time, and it's called Mandela's Way. And it's the leadership lessons from his life, from Nelson Mandela's life. And um, I've used that as an operating principle. It's like, he says, know your enemy. Mine is, you know, know your competition, right? And and be measured. And it's a long game. It's a Mm -hmm. long game. And so, you know, knowing, I think in a corporate world, you know when you need to be in front of it and lead from the front. You know when you need to lead from behind where you're not there. 
right? Mm-hmm. And you have to move your team forward. So, um, you know, for me, it's like know who you are. Don't, for God's sake, probably the most important thing I can say is you learn more from your mistakes. So don't let them undermine your confidence. Mm-hmm. Because we're all going to mess things up. God knows I have. You know, you've watched them firsthand. Yeah. Um, you helped me with a recent. I want to. I want to say how you helped me, though. I am the. Well, I, we'll talk about visiting your you at the time at the office. But when um, when I was running Boxy Charm, it was about 20, 22 employees at the time, and I was kind of like a chicken with his head cut off. I had to look at every activation people wanted to do, and I would say yes, no, yes, no, and I couldn't really scale. It was just hard for me, and I I needed people to understand their own like kind of like what to do and how to do it and you told me well this is what it looks like in a corporation there's a goal and then you have the few pillars and this is your executive summary one so when someone comes in within two or three pages they understand what you're all about then you break it down from there so i have to think about my goal i know what i'm doing i I have to kind of like understand intuitively what are my my intentions when i do all those actions and eventually i wrote down i want to grow so our goal is to grow. And then I wrote down the three, the four pillars that it took me a minute to even think about them because I had to think, what if is that a strategy? Is that a tactic? And what's the difference between the two? And finally, it all came together for me where I said, OK, here are my four pillars. Get the best product in a box. Get the best customer experience. Get the best brand experience. Give them best in class marketing campaign for free and get the best influencers experience. And that changed the entire company because it was so easy. It was, here's the goal, and here are the four ways to reach that goal. And if there is no executive in the room, you already know how to make the decision. And I would give a negative example when it doesn't work. And I would say, well, if we want to go and say, let's feed the homeless every Tuesday, is that going to help us get a better product in a box? No. Would that get a better experience for the members? Absolutely not. Customer service doesn't work. Is that going to give any better brand experience? No. Influencers experience? No. Then it doesn't help me grow. So I don't do that. I only do what helps me grow, and that's the way to know. Laser focus. Laser focus, goal-oriented. All the vectors goes into one direction. You pierce through anything. And that wouldn't come unless it was you. And the company, that was in 2015. That's when the company transformed. And you would see later on in the company people sitting down, and you would see managers talking to their, uh, their peers, and they would say, well, okay, that's a good idea. Let's see what pillars do you hit. They would say one and three. So anything you throw on the wall sticks. Anything you throw on the wall sticks. And it takes me back to what you said. When Lauder, when, when Leonard Lauder told you, think like you're a consumer, right? Think like you're con- It's such an entrepreneurial yep. phrase. Think like you're a consumer, right? Where is my consumer? Oh, he's in TikTok now. Let me go to TikTok. What, what is he doing? Oh, he's no longer doing crazy makeup look. He's going, this is how you think like you're... Con- this is what Gen Z is doing. Okay, I need to get... Uh, who's the winner in the Gen Z category? Okay, let's go and see if we can acquire them. Yep. That's, that's such, a, such a smart entrepreneur. Well, now, if you had to go and kind of like take it all back and you ask yourself, all those years, experience, what was the most impactful place for you to work? All those companies you worked for, what was that that place that really transformed you to who you are today? Oh, God, that is such a tough question because there were so many different life-changing moments for where I was at that moment in time. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I gave you many examples from Estee Lauder, and I would say that whole run was transformative, but, but more importantly, laid the fundamentals of how I operate. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, but 
I would also say that my time at Avon and two extraordinary uh, women at the top, uh, Liz Smith, who was my boss, um, and Andrea Jung, the CEO, um, the lessons learned. I mean, I remember meeting Liz. She came from Kraft, and I came from Estee Lauder. So this was an important... Now you talk about this. Um, Not familiar with Kraft. I don't yeah. Know. Kraft, Kraft. Yeah. The Macaroni food? and cheese. Okay. Huge oh, yes. Company. Now I know. Yeah. Yes. I'm thinking yeah. makeup in my head. Okay. Yeah. Kraft, no. That was my point. So They're here enormous. we both landed at Avon. She from Kraft. Me from Estee Lauder. And we sat down in a room together. And I knew, I knew this was going to be an amazing experience. Because she was so real. She's like, look, you know. Marketing fundamentals, I got it. I know how to build it. I know how to do it. I, I, don't, I don't do beauty. And I was like, okay, because <laughs> I do beauty, but all, what is this regression analytics and what is this that I need to understand? And because one of the things that I tell people is you need to understand the, uh, the operating fundamentals of your business. You can have a great idea, but if you don't understand the fundamentals of how you're not only going to get it to market, but do it consistently and, mm -hmm. and operate effectively and, and, and profitably, right? So you have to understand the beast, right? Yeah. And, and the market in which you're playing. So I would say that that was an amazing learning. Interesting. Because how could I, quite frankly and humbly, you know, good for Andrea, how could I recreate direct selling for a new generation if I didn't know what the fundamentals were to begin mm. with, right? Because I'm coming from prestige, which was all retail driven. And this was about, you know, the, you being Give me an example retailer. of a fundamental. Um, so I published basically 5 million catalogs every two weeks mm. and understanding, you know, the productivity on the page, the adjacency, what was the stickiness? You know, here's a humbling, humbling lesson for all you marketers out there, no matter what business you're in. Um, I came with, um, I came from beauty. It was going into fall. I thought, of course, you'd put a fall color story on the catalog. Why wouldn't you? Right. I mean, it's makeup. Mm -hmm. And so um, my boss from Kraft said, it's not going to be sticky enough for this audience. She said, I think we got to put, I forget what her name was, but it was a flying witch for Halloween, you know, witchy, whatever her name was. And I was like, what? It's a fashion book. My God, everybody's driving. So we, we put the two books out in tests. And of course, my, my cover bombed. And the, the flying witch that lit up and cackled sold gazillions of my product, of my oh color my God, product, so because of the stickiness. So that was an important lesson of know your audience, right? <laughs> What's going to bring them in? I love and it. then where where your adjacency? It also, it also shows that if you have somebody who comes from a different industry, that could be a net positive. Always. Huge positive. Always. Yeah. I believe in diversity at the table, diversity oh, yes. um, in experience, Absolutely. in age, in gender, in cultural. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's where you get your yeah, best Yeah, you don't want to get more use thinking like you. Thank you. I know what I think already. Give yeah. me some other ones. Yeah. Yes. Don't tell me what I want to hear. Yes. For God's sake, tell me what I need to know. Yes. Right? We're in this together. Yeah. Right? And no one has all the answers. So, uh, Claudia, um, there was uh, kind of like in a corporate world, I wanted to know since you were the one that when Louder were acquiring a company, I think it, it happened to with Stila. Mm -hmm. You're the lady that shows up with a suit and says, 
I'm going to manage everything you do in Camel. Usually we say to the founder, <laughs> you had that experience. Tell us what happened. I did. I did. Um, so first of all, I was referred to as the suit, right? So the suit is coming. And um, just in course of conversation, it's like, so you're here to make me do things like I don't want to do if I don't want to do them, right? Mm -hmm. And quite frankly, you know, the answer is, well, yeah, you sold your company. But instead, you know, what I said was only if what you do doesn't add value to the company for the long haul. So if, you know, if you think I'm going to come in and be a hard ass, I'm only going to be a hard ass if, if we're not delivering and we're not working together and we're not adding value to what you created, right? Well, first of all, it's your creation. Yeah. I mean, you and, should want you should want it to grow. Yes. Yeah. And and I think if you sold it, then you know that there are skills that you need that you don't have here. So let's not shoot. You know, yeah. let, let's not shoot the hand that just fed you, yeah. right? Let's yeah. like let's find a way to work together. And it turned out to be great. Okay, and that's good. I learned a lot from her, and I hope that she feels she learned a lot from me too. Yeah. But yeah, it was it was definitely a hazing in the beginning. But that's okay. I mean, that's what you're paid to do. That's why you're put on these things to to manage through them with um, with diplomacy. But do you have? Do you feel like when you walk into the office, kind of like the new one, do you feel like either people were intimidated or people uh, antagonizing you? Was it? How was it? It was more. Um, it was more passive aggressiveness. Interesting. Yeah, it was. I, I would never say anything was blatantly, you know in my face, I'm not going to do this just because you, you work for the company because, you know, quite frankly, yes, I do. And so do you, you know, when you, when you cash your check back in the day, you know, it's not your signature anymore. Yes. Right. And so, you know, we all have to work together to create that, that value. So, um, yeah. So what's another corporate experience that you have that you wish some corporations didn't have and you had to go through it? Something that you can tell people, look, some companies do it, and this is what they do, and I wish they didn't do. I will tell you the most humiliating mm. experience in my entire career. Um, and it was during the time that I was overseeing um, the portfolio of businesses that were Laura Mercier, Revive, and Nikeo. And um, anyway, uh, as often happens in leadership, we agreed to disagree. And um, it was, was time to part company. And instead of having a straight up conversation about it, um, the parent company uh, flew in the HR person and some other person on their corporate jet. Um, there was a snowstorm. And I remember coming to work in the snowstorm because they were coming. It was supposed to be a big strategy session. And um, I come in and Basically, they fired me, but they had security there. And they took my phone, which was my personal phone. Um, and uh, basically, I had 15 minutes to collect anything I wanted. And security was there to escort me out. I couldn't say goodbye to my team, which they're all wondering what is going on, you know, what, what's happening, who's in Claudia's office, what, what's going on here. Um, it was awful. And I thought to myself, and I even said to them, it's like, let me at least say goodbye to the team and let them know we just, you know, nobody did anything wrong here. Yeah. Right? You so know, there was no chaos or something? There was no, no someone flipping no, a table or anything? No, there was no chaos. Um, I was just stunned because I'd never been treated so disrespectfully. I felt like a criminal. Um, 
So much so that my the backlash, you know, I mean, my team was shocked. You know, my phone was blowing up because I did get to keep my phone because I had my, you know, my personal stuff in there as well. Um, so what I would say is, you know, it's not like I had the nuclear launch codes for the next lipstick package, right? I mean, it's beauty, right? Yeah. And I am locked down by confidentiality in my contract. So it's not like I'm going to do anything crazy, right? I didn't have a meltdown or, you know, nothing like that. But I was meant to feel like a criminal so much so that people call me and said, did you do something wrong? Yeah. And it's like, yeah, I guess I disagreed Perception with one of the guys. Yeah. You know, I mean, I disagreed with the chairman of the board on, you know, on the go forward path and, you know, clearly wrong answer. But I would say that that is probably the most inhumane thing a company can do. Um, and big companies sometimes, it's like, it, you don't have to take away people's dignity. You can agree to disagree and keep your humanity. And, and you know, really, what harm would it have done for them to let me say goodbye to the team? What was I going to do, blast the company? I mean, yeah. I'm not an idiot. I know there's a, a parachute coming with it, yeah. right? So I wouldn't do that. Well, parachute, I, I guess you mean... There's a severance. A severance. Yeah, There's severance, a severance yes. that comes with it. No, why would you blow away your severance? Exactly. And the word, yes, that yeah. you're going to say something. Yeah. So that that was that. What's the name of the organization? It was um, Altacor. Altacor. Was the parent company, and they owned Gerwich at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, I should say, not the parent company, but there was a division within it. There was a private equity group within the organization, um, and. They were called Altacore Corporate Enterprises, and they the that's the division that turned. That's a true corporate. I mean, the corporation owns another. Uh, what's the name? Gerwich. What's the name of the? Oh, Gerwich. The Lord Mercier Corporation was Gerwich Products. Gerwich Products. Was that was owned. the three brands. That's the yeah. evil side of corporate. Yeah. That's the, yeah. Yeah. That's a side you don't. Yes. And look, you know, um, it, it was a long time ago. But it certainly, for me, was sobering. I've never, ever seen that. You know, in all the years I grew up, um, people left companies all the time, but they left with their head held high. And, yeah. you know, you, you said goodbye gracefully. Um, it's all I'd ever But that's very odd because in the beauty industry, you were moving from one company to another, to another, to another. And you're always able to go back. You're always getting offers from the ones you left before. And mm -hmm. I've noticed in the beauty industry, it's very professional. Yeah. People go to Lauder, move to L'Oreal, stay in L'Oreal, move back to Lauder, then yep. go to Sachet. Just a very professional one. People don't, it's not, it's not a thing in the main beauty industry, right? No, it was a little heavy handed. And, you know, as I said, I had, to your point, I had worked at Estee Lauder and I'd love to go to Avon. Very gracious. There was a beautiful party when I left. Yeah. You know, I'd been invited back. I stay in touch with all my colleagues, you know, at, yeah. at Avon. Same scenario, you know. Um, and certainly um, this one was a termination, which I'd never been through either in my career. Um, but not for any wrongdoing other than a philosophical difference and, um, you know, Quite frankly, you know, that's okay too, yeah. you know, in terms of the performance and where we should be by what milestone. And, and they have a right to that. It's their company. And if that's what they wanted and they didn't feel that I was the leader that could deliver it anymore, that, that's fine. I totally get that. But um, I do think the manner in which one enters a relationship and exits a relationship is important.
Yeah. Agreed. You know, when I got divorced, I remember I thought myself, I don't want to marry a happy woman and divorce an angry woman. Exactly. I want to divorce someone, and then I want us to be happy when we see each other. Exactly. I want to know that when I come over and visit, she's happy to see me. Yeah. I want to know that when she's coming over, I want to be happy to see her. And that's the that should be the same with employees. It doesn't always work, but it doesn't mean we have to stay anyway. So. Exactly. And I'd never experienced that before, nor since. So, yeah, I think, you know, I was a little scarred for a while. <laughs> yeah. But... Do you see in the corporate world today, uh, I don't want to say corporate, in the beauty industry, all the way to the corporate world, some CEOs that are not, they're not practitioners, they're just being parachuted from the top. I mean, you mentioned one with Sashedo bringing in to manage bare minerals and then exiting bare minerals and losing money over it. But kind of like people that have no clue about the business, they're just managers. And do you see it ever working out? So you parachute in like a finance manager into yeah. a CEO position. Or you mentioned one. You said uh, the CEO role of... The president's the role. President's yeah. role. The president's role. Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting. I think understanding the business you're in, and it goes back to the operating fundamentals. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a reason beauty is such a big business. It's the business of beauty. Right. And yeah. and it runs on a different cycle than like fashion. So sometimes if you bring someone in with fashion without any practical operating experience, it takes a little longer to understand that beauty is um, it's not like fast fashion. Right. Mm -hmm. You're you're building your how you manage your your size of line, how you manage your working capital. Um, all of those elements are very different. So I think smart people can learn anything for sure. So I don't think there's. But you any see good examples of companies where the CEOs. But I'm not talking about pe people that come in not as as operators, people that just are being parachuted from the top that stays above that. That don't want to touch the little details, don't want to learn the little details. They just think like you should know it and give me a projection. I'm gonna sit on top and manage everything. I'll manage the fill rate in stores. I don't need to know the plastic composition. I, I don't need to know who the manufacturers are. Just get it done. I've never worked in for anyone in that environment that mm -hmm. was that disengaged. So I don't have any firsthand experience um, to give you an honest answer from, yeah. from my purview. You know, um, it's interesting. I think I've, I've seen people come in from other businesses and be extremely successful. I mean, look at Fabrizio Frida came from CPG. He's running Estee Lauder now. Um, you know, consistent growth upon consistent growth year on year on year on year. What do you think make that growth for Estee Lauder? Oh, gosh. I think it's a combination of things. I think first and foremost, it's a portfolio of great brands that mm -hmm. address different consumer segments. And I think that the enterprise has an operational effectiveness that now, today, back to a question you asked me earlier mm. about when you make an acquisition and you bring it in, how do you keep the brand the brand yeah. and optimize you know, the shared services, you know, the, the finance, the operations, the regulatory and legal and you know, all of those other things that aren't necessarily consumer facing? I think that Estee Lauder has done that, that rigor where they can bring them in and optimize them. I think there's always work to be done on keeping the brand the brand and keeping it. What about um, the people, though? Do you think there was a transformation with people? You know, I've been gone long enough where 
I don't have a day in and day out operating mm. perspective. Um, but a lot of the people that I worked with are still there mm -hmm. and doing well. And I will tell you, you know, having worked side by side with Jane Lauder, she knows that business in and out. She started, you know, she started on the ground. William started on the ground and they, they worked their way up. And that was very much um, Lauder's operating protocol and putting you in different functional areas to learn the business. I don't know if they do that still today because I haven't been there. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think it's a good operating practice. You know, I'll tell you a little story coming to your industry. When I moved, I started flying from 2015 consistently to New York, and I felt every time that was the makeup for the beauty industry. And I felt every time I need to catch up when I'm not, when I, I've been back for two weeks, I do whatever I do. I work, 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 come back to New York, and I felt like I need to catch up. Just when you're not there, you don't exist. And every time I would come, I would try to get those big brands. And I think that was prior to meeting you. And it was, it was that challenge because how do you get those big brands to even want to listen? How do you get them to come and say, okay, what is your offer? So I knew I came with the best offer, but you just need to get the right person that wouldn't be so busy in a time where the beauty was in its renaissance time. It was just booming. No matter what you do, you, you have to really mess it up to fail. You just everyone <laughs> were getting true. orders and orders like, why do I need to even talk to you? Move aside. I'm busy. So I go there and I remember I was trying to get this one lady that was telling me I'm going to help. I've never told you that story. She was working as the head of marketing for L'Oreal USA, and she was working over there. And I was, I was approached. Someone introduced me to her, and she said, "I'm launching my own box as well." I said, "I don't care. I still need someone to consult." She said, "Okay, I will consult for you." I said, "I want the big brands. That's all I want." She said, "Okay, let me go and look at your brand." She said, "The name. Are you sure about the name?" I said, "Yes. I don't care about the name." She said, "Well, I mean, then I said, listen, I just need the brands." I said, well, also, let's look at your website, the look and feel. I said, listen, I'm sorry. I'm not going to modify the website. I just need the brands. Well, tell me who are you? <laughs> Why are you here in seven words? And what are you here to change? In seven words? I said, yes. Listen, I never done this. You manage L'Oreal's marketing. How about you start? You give me that about L'Oreal in seven words. Then I'll come back to you with mine. Well, L'Oreal, and she gives, goes on. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. It's already 70 words. She's like, well, L'Oreal, it's a big brand. It's 100. I'm like, yeah, well, why are you coming up with seven words for? Listen, I just need the big brands. Yeah, but you don't have a DNA. Who are you? Why are you here for? It's not about the money. I need you. said, so, listen, I don't think it's going to work. Don't worry about it. Yeah, because your brand doesn't have any feeling, anything. There's no DNA. I had no idea what she's talking about. DNA. This is industry terms, by the way. I just knew if I'm going to get those big brands that everybody, those hero products from big brands, I don't have to do nothing because that product is desirable. I don't need to think about it. It was just so easy to know but what's by important. The way, a lot of people think like that. A lot of buyers uh, think like that. Who starts a company yeah. like this? But that was apparently an eminent yeah. thing that you need to start before you even start your brand. It'll yeah. be the death of any great company. Because it's unreal. Once you lose that scrappiness and once you lose that, curiosity to learn more and to to try to no yeah it was it has to be done a certain way mentality yeah she was she was yeah. she was uh she wasn't a fit right but but then she said listen you're never gonna make it the you don't really know what's important <laughs> did you call uh, her up recently she called me once <laughs> i made it uh, once i started growing 
and I started making the, the industry magazines, she called me. And she said, listen, I didn't know you are going to grow to that size. I guess I have to have some tips from you. I said, sure, what do you need? She said, well, you know, I'm still thinking with my brand and X, Y, Z. I said, yeah, but that was two, three years ago. How many boxes did you sell so far? She's like, well, nothing. I didn't launch it yet because I'm still trying to modify my mission statement around who am I? <laughs> like, That's like analysis <laughs> paralysis. Exactly. Right? Yeah, and that was, that was the thing. So when I spoke to you, it was very refreshing because... You didn't give a fuck about all this stuff. It's just, you're like, oh, yeah, brands, let's go. Okay, let me go and tell you how you get everyone to understand what you're doing. It always, it was but, just okay, those... so answer the question. Like, how did you get the big brands without that stuff? Well, I was spitting a lot of blood. Um, I mean, you have to really climb that mountain with that big rock that you push. You kind of know that you need that one big brand. And, and then the they rest, all follow. Okay. Yeah, but, but the idea is that I, I said I'm a marketer, right? I'm a marketer for them. And it took... Uh, and I remember the first times where the big brands came in, I learned that a big reason they came, it's because their social media marketing team became a thing. Before that, social media wasn't much of a thing. So now they're like, guys, we need to be with BoxyCharm. And I can tell you so many tactics. You know, one tactics we did. Well, how about, I would say, one of the biggest things that I watched in terms of you connecting with people is we would go to these industry events yeah all the time and you know just introducing you to people and then letting them spend time with you and feel that passion and that and and what your mission was and how you knew where the audience was going and how to reach them and then all of a sudden people are like who was that guy that you brought what was yeah. his name again um and so you know you made the comment about earlier today when we were chatting about people who sit in their offices versus people who get out there. Yeah. And um, I think that that is key. I think yeah. that's where it was. Any good it was company, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You have to be there. I, I just didn't understand. Yeah. One of my competitors never been there. And I asked myself, but why? He was the biggest. Why is it? And just, where are you? Uh, but the thing was, for me, it was, it was kind of like a bunch of stuff that you do, right? You can't pin one. I remember one thing we did. One brand really wanted to keep working with us again and again. So what they did was they sent us a box. It was a cake, but it looked like a box. It was all edible with all their products in it. So they just wanted us to repost them because our page was big. So we posted that. And then I said, fuck, this is, this is it. Let's go. We made cakes. In every big brand we wanted their business received a cake that looked like a boxy box. But it looks to perfection like a boxy chum box. It was like a thousand bucks for each one of it's them. It's like one of those like you and with all their products cake. inside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. And Let them eat cake. Yeah, yeah. You know how many yeah. brands came because of that? I mean, Becca came because of that. You know how many of them? And we got Becca. It was Prosecco Pop first, then we got Champagne Pop in our box. It was the the number one highlighter in the world. You blew that one up. Just boom. It was just, there is no competition. Like it, it doesn't make it to a, a subscription box. It was, it was kind of like, why would they put it? It's the hottest. And eventually we had uh, Better Than Sex Mascara. We, we had it all. You name it. We brought it in. And every tactic added. So when we said brand experience... Is that going to add to the brand's experience? Because we had the four pillars, customer experience. I mean, prod, best product in the box, customer experience, brand experience, influencers experience. So for the brand's experience perspective, every time there was an idea, you said, will it be good? Well, it would change the, the brand will know us now. They're all going to have a cake in the office. They're all going to know who it is part of the experience. You want their business. 
anything that works. And it was the most simple tactics you would imagine. And, and you would just go around, look at what happened in the world and say, oh, that would help here, that wouldn't help there. You're just very aware because you have a direction. And that direction was such an instrumental mindset to follow. It was, it was probably one of the, and that's why I wanted to bring you over because that was just a very simple thing that you taught me that made me think, but forever you change every company you open from now on. This is how you go and this is how you make the destination easy to reach. It is really good. is that simple. Good. Yeah, I mean, it really <laughs> is. Very good yeah. you know, Absolutely. Uh, um, and he is one of the And it best. doesn't take much, I guess, like I don't, again, I don't know beauty, but I'm assuming that it didn't take much to differentiate in beauty industry marketing. You're talking about how even social media was novel and, and new. I mean, that, that goes to show you that like you take a simple idea, like, I mean, sending cake to, I don't, the word isn't buyers, but sending cake to these like company representative stakeholders, all of a sudden you've just totally, they've never received anything like that ever yeah. before. Mm -hmm. And you could copy, you could copy paste into any industry if you want to make some noise. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, if you think about that, it's that unboxing experience. Yeah. So no matter what, I mean, I get supplements that yeah. come now and yeah. you know i open everything by the way ever since boxy charm every time something comes now whether it's an influencer mailing in my industry or outside of and like i said just recently supplements like yeah. i was like okay let's see what this is you know and open oh, it up yeah exactly and are they leveraging qr codes to teach me a little yeah. bit about the product yeah. and what what happens when it arrives and engaging me from that moment with an element of surprise, right? So there's so many things that are transferable from other industries. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. But you pick up tools. The, the way I noticed, I, I kind of like, I always looked at this. It was very much for marketing, but it goes for anything else. That I came in as a marketer doing marketing for other stuff. And I said, oh, they don't use any of those tools. It's kind of like I'm coming into a new continent. You have indigenous people with bows and arrows, and you're like, oh, I'll bring my AR right here. I'm, I'm gonna, I'll be the. It was, it was as, as you said, you pick from that industry. Now the beauty industry is highly competitive. When I walked in, it was only few that understood uh, influencers marketing, and people kept swimming against the current, trying to go with magazines and all that. It was like, okay, that's that's how they work. Once they go into the, I knew how to manage that, but. But that was easy at the time. Today, you go in, you everyone do the same thing. Everyone has AR. They all shoot at each other with the advanced weapon system. Uh, so, you don't okay, want to so go. Now, you mentioned that you were actually working with some potentially up-and-coming brands that could be like the next thing, right? Mm -hmm. So what do they do different? So first of all, let's just start with the founders. And, you know, whether it's Joe or these, these men and women, actually, that I'm working with, um, they have a vision. They have something that's differentiated in the marketplace. One is um, a brand that's coming out that's based on uh, longevity science. So it's a holistic view. So, you, of, you, But you're a board member right now and a consultant. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're going to go in, back into it real quick. But you're a board member and consultant now. Correct. On multiple companies. Some yes. of them are public companies. Mm -hmm. And I think what, what's making it very unique is that going from the corporate world day job, now you have basically a job couple every few months you have couple days where you sit down with a particular board and you go through some pretty hectic reading but then eventually you give your your uh, ideas and it, it you probably get a check from each one I would want to sell on a hundred grand that's what I hear that they're paying I don't know what you're doing but that's depends usually on, the market honestly it depends on the company the size of the company okay and whether they're public or private 
but um, you know, some companies are smaller and they they, they can't, can't afford that right, amount. Yeah. Exactly. But then you get also stacks, right? So the idea yes. is that you can absolutely leave as a consultant, but instead of just looking for opportunities here and there, you can go to a more structured format where you say, here's a public company, they're looking for a board member seat and someone with that particular experience. Tell us how do you get those people? Sure. What do you do if somebody wants to say, I can leverage my knowledge, I don't want to work full time, but I do want to have a couple of those gigs plus getting some equity. What, what do you do? How do I do it? So I would say to anyone, I started thinking about it heavy in the seat. Like when I was at, actually, when I was, believe it or not, I started thinking about it during that whole experience mm -hmm. with Bear. And it was like, okay, you know, um, two things. I'd love to, you know, latch onto something else and have another run. But in the meantime, um, I remember seeing some of my colleagues start landing board seats outside of the industry mm -hmm. so that when that time comes, because whether we face it or not, um, you know, the beauty industry is... I hate to say it, but it's true. It's a little ageist, right? Um, and certainly um, being a woman in that industry, you're sensitive to that. And you have to understand, okay, I'm not going to have somebody put an expiration date on me. Mm -hmm. So I better start thinking about it now. And so um, I let that be known to some of the recruiters that I had spoken to through the years and said, okay, what do I need to do to get ready? And how do I need to market myself? update, you know, my executive bio, really think about, you know, what, what impact did I have on that organization and what could I bring it to? And really um, started working with a coach to reframe my narrative to fit board seats so that you could look at other industries. I was also asked, do you want to stay in beauty? And it's like, no, that's where I work. Mm. So obviously, you wanted to it, change. exactly. Yes. And I do believe that there are some great synergies. And so um, I was fortunate uh, to have used a firm uh, when I was trying to find uh, a leader in the UK. And uh, the firm was Spencer Stewart. And so I got a call um, from Spencer Stewart in the UK and also in the US about this specialty chemicals company that had businesses, um, yes, in consumer products, but also in mining and agriculture and in um, in diesel and marine and fossil fuels and how to clean, you know, burn cleaner, mm -hmm. right? And and uh, and give efficiencies and lessen the impact on the environment. And I thought, wow, what an incredible company. Are you sure you got the right number? Like, have you read my background? And um, and it was great to be able to see your skills transfer. As I was mm. studying the company and what they were doing, I was like, oh, yeah, you know, this would be so applicable to their business at this point in their evolution as they're really focused on ESG and really focused on that. And really focused on, you know, sustainability and sourcing and um, and the beauty industries there. Mm -hmm. So I would say to people, start thinking now, no matter what field you're in. For example, technology. I mean, everybody lives off of it, right? The world is tech-enabled, right? And so, okay, so then what are some other areas where I could take my learnings and add value? And work with some recruiters and and get it. So done. you have certain recruiters that are specialized in getting board member seats, advisor seats. Most of the big recruiters, um, whether it's a Spencer Stewart or a Russell Reynolds or Corn Ferry, but most of those bigger firms, as well as some boutique firms, 
Um, and uh, is this like a? Because I don't even know those names. Is this like a Robert Half. I've yeah. It's I've, a Robert we, Half. We, we don't know those names. Okay, so <laughs> they're no. Well, they're they're um, they're actually great executive placement firms. Okay. And there's um, one JDH that I'm working with now. I sit on the board of Fashion Group with a gentleman who's the president of a recruitment firm that's excellent. And they have a board group. They have people who actually um, place board members and look at big companies and what their needs are um, and what skill sets do they need um, on their boards for the appropriate governance. Do they have the right players in finance, in legal, you know, on the the commercial side of it? And so, you know, where are there places where executives with experience can add value to the executive team? Mm -hmm. So there are actually sections in these companies that that focus on board placements now smaller boutique firms do both but somewhere along the course of your career if you haven't been approached by a recruiter then make yourself known right i mean mm, that's, where the, that's where you're at like that's the stage you're at in your career yeah yeah, yeah. make yourself known yeah because right now you're not managing a company you're right. not an executive you have your schedule open more than before and you just go to the right firms, make sure that if there is a good opportunity in the now what company you I wouldn't would say, say that. No? I would say that with the people that I'm working with now, there's an opportunity to get reengaged again mm. in 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 a more meaningful Do you and, want to? Right. For the right thing. There's one mm. that I can't talk about right now, but it for the right thing, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um because it look, I mean, I what am I gonna do? Just yeah. You know, there's so much energy and there's so much learning. And, and the more time I spend with young talent, the more I learn from them. It probably makes you excited, too. Yeah. It gets you excited when you see when you work yeah. a startup. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it does. And I think it keeps you um, it keeps you engaged. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's just I don't know that I just want to sit back and watch it go away. You know, sometimes that I don't know if I'm yet at that stage where it's OK, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the other thing I would say, too, for anybody who is making that leap, um, what was helpful to me um, as I walked into that boardroom and understanding that the executives are running the company, right? And particularly if you're still operating, because I was until recently, as you know, till December, in the seat, in that CEO role. And right now I'm doing some interim CEO work. So um, important to know when you're operating and when you're on a board and it's governance Right. And you let the leaders lead Mm -hmm. and you're there to provide, you know, strategic counsel. And I think that that's an important thing. And particularly for an entrepreneur, because, my God, you know, you're you're all over it. Right. And so um, hard to go into a room now and and have all these great ideas. And it's like, well, yeah. It would take a hundred They're going to take years, that, right, yeah. and run with it? Or, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it, it, it's, it's humbling again, right? It's not your company. Yeah. I still wanted to can, – can we go back to the question I asked before? Because I want to. I still want to understand, like we were talking about innovative marketing strategies that makeup brands are using. So I was saying the ones that you're working with now, what are some of the things that you're seeing them do that differentiate, that are sort of letting them be the uh, the – they're, they're sort of carving the way for the next. Sure. So one is a machine on TikTok, like a machine. But this is a person with credentials in her field who is who understands how to connect with her audience and where her audience is, right? 
And so I would say that aside from the fact that she's got a proprietary formula, um, she's got the credentials in the space. So this isn't an Insta star. This is somebody who's been working in the business since, who quite frankly started- in the beauty industry? Yes. Um, who started behind the counter, you know, um, and and assisted a, a, a great makeup artist out there and, and yet another, and is still working in the field and has a point of difference product, but also understands where her audience is. And I think she'll break through because her concept is reminds me very much of what was happening in the 90s and all those those things that broke through. Another one um, has some great in, innovation in the skin longevity, using um, longevity science for skin, for um, supplements and topicals, and really tapping into um, skin re revitalization from within. Your body naturally has... Um, NAD in it, and, mm. and so this really works with your body to optimize it. And I'm not a scientist, so I'm not even going to try to explain the science. I'm so blown away by these, um, by these uh, scientists, but what they've done is really incredible in, in finding a way that this can be absorbed topically um, mm. down into the dermis, which is, is difficult for this molecule in the past. And so, again, I like their whole... Um, biotech, and it's a biotech company, just so happens that their first entree into the market is a, you know, a skin supplement um, product. But again, I like the longevity approach because right now that's what we're all about and how they bring that to market, mm -hmm. um, you know, without divulging too much, but technology is a big piece of that, right? You know, if you sit there and you look at the Apple Watch, right, and those commercials and everything it tells you, yeah. Right. Um, so you think about how do you bring that into your your whole lifestyle, right? Yeah. In terms of what you're ingesting and what you're putting on and what you're doing. So embracing technology, um, embracing communication and community building through the use of what? Technology. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, I think but they're both using it differently. Does that answer your it question? It does. And, and what does breakthrough look like now? How do you, so, you know, when you're looking at a company, you mentioned this before, the whole industry is like there's so much competition. It's speed to market. Insane, right? insane amounts of competition. So speed to market. Yeah. Speed, speed to, to market. market. Yeah. You know, you know, the idea that I had uh, in case I don't sell BoxyCharm and things wouldn't work out because we, it was COVID years and all that. My plan was to, to do two things. One was to take a brand. Uh, to go to the big brands and say, give us an item. Let's create an item. We're gonna you're gonna manufacture and sell it on our site. You're gonna send your people. It's open for everybody, not just our community. Only new items, something that doesn't sell in Sephora, so it wouldn't be a conflict of interest. But you just launch it with us. We do 50/50, so we create revenue. Uh, but we'll do it every month, and it's gonna be Natasha, Denona, for example, Too Faced, all those big brands. This way, they send all their email lists to us we collect their money also but it's the the name email address we get all the information and then we can uh, we can upgrade them to subscribe but then the main point is it's another revenue that we don't do and now we instead of going for the subscribers recurring revenue now we're actually getting for free actual transactions actual e-com transactions to so then now the brands will look at us as marketers we're going to really be a serious competition for Sephora. 
And I noticed that Sephora didn't come in to buy us. And I said, well, because we were actually helping them, they don't fucking need to buy us. But if I do this now, it's a problem because all I have to do once I get big enough to start putting core products. Right now, I'm going to only do newness. But once I'm big enough and they can kill me, I can go and tell them, now roll in all your other products or at least a couple core hero items that I know I can sell and I can build it up. That was one phase. The second phase, talking about speed to market that you mentioned, I figured that the only problem in the beauty industry is the fact that all the components are made in China. And that adds about two to three months, sometimes four months to the whole process. So why don't we have components made in North America, maybe in Mexico, maybe in Dominican Republic? So I started making phone calls. And I learned that there's no particular reason. It's just because you're already getting it from China and no one is trying to be faster. I'm, I called all the manufacturers and I, not all, but few, it blew my mind that all of them said, ah, you know, I don't know. I mean, okay, but the brand, if you know there is a trend that goes on right now, go back to holographic, and I can be in stores within 90 days, the supply and demand, if you have so many people searching for it, and I'll be the third player to come or the second player to come, of course I want to come. I don't want to come when 50 other comes in with the same supply chain problems. I want to be before anybody else. So if I was to do it, I, I'll be able to kind of like control and say, well, you can do it uh, only if you sell your products on our platform. We'll manufacture you the components faster, and then you can do the whole, the whole sale on our website. Now you launch it with us. Now it's a chessmate because Sephora, if you're stuck with, and then if you're stuck with products, have no fear, we put it in a box. So there is no RTV. This is going to be zero chance for Sephora to ever compete because they don't have the subscribers. They don't do manufacturing. And now I'm only selling newness. And the brand would only make money with us. And the brand would have to go and be in my box in order for them to be in my... So that was my plan to take over. So I wanted an input from an exec like you. Shoot holes into that theory. Wow. I was just going to sit here and compliment you on that, Barry. <laughs> Thanks. So, okay. No, really. And, and I'll tell you why. Because what you just did was exemplify what we've been talking about today. And that is agility. You see something, you see a market, you're aware of the fact that it's, it's got a gaping hole. Nobody's moving fast. Nobody's being a fast mover. That's why entrepreneurs are so exciting to me because you're nimble, right? You can, you can make a move and make an impact. You fail, you fail fast, yeah. right? Not on a big scale. But you couldn't get their attention, right? Because they didn't get it. But you had a solution for them yeah. that would have renovated. Everything, yeah. Right. Yeah. So yeah. I, 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 don't, I don't really want it to shoot theory, uh, a hole in that theory because one, it never came to pass. But two, it was a great strategic play of how you would, again, take a brand, Sephora, that was innovative at the time. When they first came, they were the, you know, the place you went to incubate your brands. They mm -hmm. had all the brands that people wouldn't take. They, they were the story you lived. So naturally, you would think when you went there, there would yeah. have been synergy and an understanding of that and an embracing of that, right? Yes. Not the case, right? Not anymore, yeah. Right. And so, you know, I think that's the watch out for companies, too, as they grow is don't get complacent. You know, I always laugh. I, I keep this close to my heart as an individual, but also for companies, like don't read your own press, right? Mm -hmm. when, when you stop mm -hmm. being 
hungry and learning and nimble like and you know um but you know when you think you're you're all that that's when you know the universe god whomever you believe in hits you with the humility stick yeah. and a sense of humor yeah. and says oh yeah maybe not mm -hmm. you know maybe you need to you know keep grounded in what made you successful in the first place and and stay hungry and and continue to do that so that was by the way, something you should tuck away because that just the... I was thinking of ever mentioning this on a podcast and I decided that, you know what? People would never do it. I Execution is, is like so far off for everybody. It's not like I haven't spoken about other people that nobody wanted to actually go and suddenly learn something new because they're all somewhat comfortable even if they're suffering right now. They're not going to go and execute. There's a lot so, of people at the top, yeah. they're not working like they used to work. Mm -mm. They're they're showing up to work every day. They're in the meetings. They're appeasing shareholders, the, the profit. But they're not working. They're not really, really, really working the way that you have to work. They're not thinking outside the box. They're not exploring new things like yeah. that. Nobody's even. But you know why, though? Because if you set up the organization and you have eight hours of meetings, where is the time for creativity? Where is the time for the brain to even start to think of an avenue like that? Yeah. And that's that's why I have to build the org so that you don't get inundated and just bogged down with all this BS. Yep. And I think the other thing that happened is while Zoom, Teams, whatever was a godsend and kept us, you know, safe. Um, look, I'm all for flexible work hours and remote and all of that. I grew up in sales, so my office was always in my home, right? Um, so I didn't believe in FaceTime makes you successful, but I've worked for plenty of people that believe that. So I get it. But one of the things that I do think, while it had its good points, the other thing that I've noticed is you don't have brainstorming sessions and strategic conversations. It's very transactional. You have it booked for X amount of time. Mm -hmm. Here's the agenda. Here are the points you're going to cover. Okay, we have four minutes left. What do, right? Yeah, that's and a that's a challenge with a company that does that because you'll sit down and you'll talk and guys, there's something pressing. That other facility is on fire and we uh, people are dying. Well, okay, thanks. The time for that topic is over. Now let's talk about Jenna's birthday. Uh, who bought balloons? It's just let's go and follow that routine. Just there is no consideration of important and urgent. Yeah, yeah. I think that's true. And the urgent also always crowds out the important and that's Absolutely. something that you really have to you know really have to work at so i do believe look you know i'm not here to preach to anybody but there's something to be said for humanity coming together and feeding off of one another's energy and looking at looking mm -hmm. at each other and 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 building you know building that and then you go off and do your other stuff and the tactical stuff for sure but i think somewhere we've got to find our way back because that's where the, it's hard to get passionate about something on a screen. It's, it's virtually impossible. It really is. It is. I mean, you sit there and you're, you know, you feel like you're one of the Brady Bunch. I don't know if half your listeners even know that what that show is. So another, I, I, yeah. It's a it's little like, dating, but yeah, like, yeah, I, I know yeah, the show. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm not from America, so I don't know what it's, it is. It's I was a kid, you, but. There when was you have all show. the faces on the screen at yeah. once for a Zoom yeah. call, that's she's that's yeah. referring to. That's, you know, you have a screen of all these little faces, right? Okay. And and the most annoying, never mind. No one wants to know that I find it annoying when we have meetings and everybody has their camera off. It's like, well, what I mean, are you doing? That is annoying. No, that for me, that's a huge pet peeve. Yeah. I, was, I was talking about this with somebody yesterday. If I, okay, I get it. Sometimes there's life happening and you yep. don't want to put on the camera. Maybe you're... You're taking a call in your car and it's on Bluetooth and obviously you're not yeah. going to put on your camera. But 
Like I like to see people. Well, I guess I guess when you have employees and if if someone consistently, which obviously happened to all of us, always like turning on the camera, the the conversation I had with them is like, look, it's very simple for me, okay. It's as if you're not showing up at the office, okay, and you're on a phone call with me. No, I told you to be at the office. Now, since we're on Zoom because of COVID, I expect you to clear your schedule to work. You're sitting down. You're not going to travel to Orlando, Disney World, calling me in a roller coaster right now and plugging your earpod <laughs> on your Zoom. No, I need you to sit down and work. If you're not doing it, you're not working. Don't bother coming on the Zoom call if I'm not going to see your face. I think face. it's a courtesy thing, too. Like, if everyone's putting on their camera, say you can't, say you are actually walking somewhere with your AirPods in. And just say, hey, sorry. Like, yeah. like at least address it. Well, I'll yeah. tell you, I'll tell you where, yeah. where I think it's a little bit more than just if 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 you're not an employee, it's a courtesy. But yeah. if you are working in an organization and they and you see that the person is not turning on the camera, after you finish the meeting, you probably have some tasks to do after. You bet that person that does, didn't turn on the camera is doing something else. If you're prepared to work and you're sitting down in front of your screen, you turn on the camera. When you're done, I know that that person is much more likely to execute what they what we ask him to do. But the other person that didn't turn it on because whatever condition was is not in a working condition. He's not going to execute right away. He's much more likely to to push it under the rug. And if the follow up is in a week from now, <laughs> go figure. That's where the inefficiency comes, and that's how you can find the ones that are just not made for it. Some people were made to work at the office. They need that structure for them. And by the way. Okay, don't get me wrong. I am I'm one of those that when I was at school, I never liked online courses. It was not for me. But when it's work, it's not a game. It, for me, it was much more important. It's like you have to go and do it. So that's where I was, I was much more apprehensive. When I saw this as a trend, I saw some great people that did amazing. Suddenly, when they work from home, they're not the same. They're not shining on and sometimes on the other side people that work from home perform better so yeah. you got well you got to have i mean as a professional yeah. you got to have self-awareness to operate at your highest level like yeah. that, that's yeah. what you have to do yeah. so if you're in office and you feel like you thrive in that environment and the job that you're doing warrants it and you feel like you need to be creative with people in a room yeah. and whatnot or maybe you just like the rigidity of that schedule then you structure your life you structure your jobs so you can do that if you don't like i don't i don't mind working from home at all but there's sometimes where like for example I'll, I'll function better at home in certain environments where people aren't distracting me. Like when I'm in an office yeah. too, people can yeah. walk in all yeah. the time, right? Yeah. Turning off fires. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the other thing is if you're trying to hire somebody, you're trying to build rapport with somebody who you've never met before in your life, you can't really do that via Zoom. Right. It's virtually impossible. So it's very hard. It, it's not like if you're going to hire somebody, when I would hire people, I'd go for lunch with them, sit down with them, right? Yeah. Like spend yeah. some time with them. Yep. So you have yeah. to balance out. So there's sort of a place for both, I think. Yeah. And I think we're trying to find that place now yeah. because really it is. It's it's a little bit of both. Yeah. And, and it's not the same ratio for everyone, but it has to be the right ratio to bring your best self to whatever you've committed to professionally. Right? 100%. You've got to bring the best of you to that. Yeah, 100%. So. Claudia, thank you so much for coming. Thank you it for having amazing. me. It was a really good interview. I'm so glad we learned. We learned a lot. I mean, I just learned. This is your first ever podcast. Yes. Ever. This I'm is my so first. Psyched. I'm so honored. We're, we're very, actually. very proud of you. You did. Um, we give you an A+. Plus. Really? How about that? Oh no guest actually received a great, and this is the first time, get an A+. Plus. Is that true? It is. It is. I true. love being yeah. best in class. <laughs> <laughs> Just a little, a little, uh, what is that? Uh, 
what did we overachiever there. Overachiever. Yeah, yeah. A little overachiever that's great. there. That's great. Honestly, thank you. Thanks oh, for your thank patience you. and the opportunity. Yeah. Where do you want people to know anything more about you where to reach you uh, socials anything like that well well joe will tell you I'm, I'm not i watch all the social media but i'm not always engaged so if you want to get to me go to my linkedin page send me a message claudia i Pochett. promise yeah it's claudia pochett linkedin right yes yeah see that tells you but i do <laughs> check whoever you out there um and what's so bizarre is I live in that world, right? I'm on TikTok all day watching this yeah. girl and I'm on this and that. I just... Um, you use it on a business network. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's I definitely... That. Yeah. I figure, you awesome. know what? If I want you in the car with me seeing all this, I'll pick you up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm not going to do it on Instagram. I'm not going to do a live. I'm not going to do it. No, I appreciate you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you guys so much. Thank you, Claudia. All Thank right, you. Take care. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets and so much more download the app in virginia today and get 150 dollars in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at betmgm betmgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly see betmgm.com for terms 21 plus only virginia only new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days please gamble responsibly gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER promotional offer not available in washington dc at parker our purpose is simple we want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently by using more sustainable practices by developing better technologies we keep moving forward with each new idea innovation and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.